Hey, good morning. Really good to be here today. By the way, I want to say good morning to anybody who's watching online as well. Glad you took the time to, to uh, tune in with us. I think it's going to be a good time. Anyway, I, man, it's already been a good time. That worship time was just awesome. Thank you. Thank you to the worship team for bringing our attention to the Lord. That was just really, really good. As Troy mentioned, um, my name is Paul Jorgensen. Sharon, my life, you better do this little thing. There we go. Uh, we've lived in Bemidji for about a year and a half. Um, love living here. And uh, I serve as pastor of discipleship at Mocum Discipleship Ministry. And just very, very quickly, Mocum Discipleship Ministry is a ministry on the Leech Lake Reservation, uh, a little bit north and a little bit west of the casino there. And our focus is on helping Native believers become disciples who make disciples. And it's a privilege for me that I get to do this. I can't thank God enough for allowing me to do this. Now, Today is First Advent. We've already talked about that, and we have a candle here, which is known as the Hope Candle. So today we're going to talk about hope, but I don't know if you were noticing, but those songs we just sang, there was an awful lot of hope in those songs. And it's almost like I could say, I think I'll just pray and be done and go home, because we already got a sermon. Now, some of you are probably going, oh, that's a good idea. I like that. <laughs> anyway, we are going to look at the Word of God, and we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that I believe just encapsulates hope in the Old Testament. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. And I want to encourage you to open your Bibles and use those Bibles. Um, before Sharon and I came to Bemidji or came to Minnesota, we lived in Europe. And in Europe, we had friends who experienced a time when Bibles were not allowed. And the joy they had of just opening that book and reading the very words of God was just amazing. So I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Please just follow along with me, okay? Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. There are so many keys to hope in this passage, and we're going to take a look at some of them, but we need to start off by talking a little bit about this. Sometimes we have the idea in the Old Testament that prophecies just sort of happen in a vacuum, like some guy was sitting in a house or out in the mountains or something like that, and God spoke to him and he wrote it down. It's good to know what's going on in Israel while this prophecy was occurred. So let me just give you a little bit of background on that. Ahaz was king. 
The Bible says that Ahaz was one of the most evil kings that Israel had. He practiced idol worship. Not only that, he sacrificed his sons in idol worship. So being a prince back then wasn't such a good deal. He lost a war to the northern kingdom of Israel and the, and the, the area of Aram in which 120,000 of his soldiers were killed in one day. The result of that battle is that 200,000 women and children were taken hostage and brought to the north. So this whole idea of taking hostages in the Middle East, this isn't new. This is what was going on. In addition to that, the legal system was corrupt, and uh, basically it was used by the rich to defraud widows and orphans. Now, if you've got 120,000 dead soldiers, you've got a lot of widows and orphans. And the legal system was against them. Assyria, which is just to the east, was developing as a world power. They were rattling their swords. They were ready to go and take over the Middle East. And actually, Ahaz, the king of Israel, bribed the king of Assyria to come and fight his enemies for him. And in doing so, what he did was he emptied the treasuries of the southern kingdom and basically gave the king of Assyria all of their riches. Be a little like if we got in a war with another country and then we decided to give all of our national treasures to Russia if they would come and help us. I mean, that's the same dynamic that's going on. Because of that, there was no hope. Just darkness. And that's where it picks up in Isaiah 9. In fact, in Isaiah 8.22, which comes right before Isaiah 9, it says this, Then they will look toward the earth, and see distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into other darkness. It was just a dark time, and there wasn't much hope at all. And Troy already mentioned this morning, we're at the Christmas season now, and Christmas season is supposed to be a happy time. We know that that's often not the case. First of all, the area that we live in, it's dark a whole lot more than it's light. Just the way it is this time of year up here. This is where we live. There are expectations sometimes that are put on us by others or expectations that we put on ourselves to somehow be happy, to somehow celebrate, to somehow experience that Christmas feeling, whatever that is. And sometimes we think, okay, well, let's do that by excess and by consumption and those types of things. And, you know, if I'm not happy enough, I need more decorations. You know, I, I go into some of these places now, and I see these inflatable Christmas decorations, and I thought, what in the world? Who, who, who would do that? I mean, we got one across the street in our neighborhood right now. I have no idea what they paid for that thing. The crazy thing is, every time it gets a little bit windy, it blows over, you know? <laughs> Which is a little bit like our feelings. It gets a little bit windy, and they blow over. In addition to that, there's overspending, there's overindulging, there's over busyness. You know, uh, go, what, another Christmas party I got to go to? Really? Notice the I got to go to. We put the expectations on ourselves. In addition to that, family tensions and conflicts get amped up a little bit, and there's depression, and there's loneliness. And unfortunately, there are people taking their own lives because they feel so alone and everything looks so dark and there just doesn't seem to be any hope. And that's just on a personal level and the world chaos that's going on right now. The, the military action that is taking place literally all over the world. We generally hear, only hear about two of them, but there are about 17 of them going on right now. Political chaos. 
and cultural chaos. And all that is going on, and you say, where's the hope? But I believe the people back in 750 AD when Ahaz was king, they were doing the same thing. They were going, where is the hope? And here's the crazy thing. We, 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 we use the word hope a lot, but we really, sometimes hope is more like wishful thinking. You know, In fact, I, I googled um, some things, uh, just statements about hope to see what I could come up with. And uh, I, can't, I found four. Let me just read these to you. This is what hope is. Hope is a waking dream. Okay. Never lose hope. Tomorrow could be the day you've been looking for. All right. If you do not hope, you will not find what's beyond your hopes. I don't even know how to put the words together on that one. And this one, I love this one. Hope is the only bee that makes honey without flowers. Okay. And yet the Bible talks about hope. And in this passage of Scripture, there's some keys to hope. And I want to start with 9-1 and just make this statement. When the Bible talks about hope, hope is based on truth. Hope is based on truth. We actually sang that a couple of songs ago. Listen to 9-1 again. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress in the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. I think we're going to have a map up there. You know, if we could pop that map up there, that would be great, because those were all, were all the tribes of Judah, where you notice up there towards the top by the Sea of Galilee, you've got Zebulun and Naphtali, okay? And those people were suffering terribly. But take a look at where that red star is. That red star is Nazareth. Nazareth was right on the border between Zebulun and Naphtali. And God decided, even though those people were suffering at the time, a blessing is coming. My son is coming. And he's going to grow up in this town. And actually, at the time when he comes, it's going to be Galilee of the Gentiles. The Romans are going to take it over. There's a prophecy in all of that. And it goes on and says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light is dawn. Now, when the Bible mentions light, many times it's a symbol for truth. In fact, I would encourage you to do this. Read a passage of Scripture, and every time you see the word truth in there, or every time you see the word light in there, just substitute the word truth. And see if it makes sense. 99 times out of 100, it will. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. They have seen a great truth. And what is the truth? I found four things in here that give us hope because they're based on truth. And we're going to look at them very, very quickly. First of all, four foundations for hope in this passage. I'm going to bring you to the first one. The first thing, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you what it is and then read it to you, okay? The first thing is God's past actions. God's past actions. 9-4, for in the day of Midian's defeat, you shatter the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. He's referring back to an event that occurred in the time of the judges where Midian had taken over Israel and basically oppressed it for seven years. God calls a man named Gideon. Gideon goes out with, I believe it was 22,000 men to fight 120,000. God says, no, 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 you got too many guys. Get rid of them. And they whittle it down to 
300. And then you know what Gideon's guys have to do in this battle? They got to do three things, four things actually. They got to break jars, they got to hold up torches, they got to blow trumpets, and shout, Great is the Lord. That's it. Anybody in this room can do that. And what does God do? God steps in and removes those people who are oppressing Israel. And it's good to remember those things. He, Isaiah takes the time to remember them. And think about your life. Think about the times when God came through and God delivered you. God helped you. I think one that was really funny, we were doing youth ministry in the country of Austria. Actually, we weren't in Albania. We were in Croatia, which was pretty close. And we had a bunch of kids with us that didn't know the Lord. And two of the girls got saved like on a Monday night. And uh, the next day, those two girls, I mean, they're brand new believers. They're excited. They're loving God. And they go down to take showers. And they come back from the showers a little bit later. And they're just hysterical. And the reason they're hysterical is one of them had left her, like, wallet in the showers now this wasn't a bible camp this was just a campground that we were at and she went back to look for it and it was gone and she's freaking out you know because this is like all her money and so then the other girl her friend who just became a brand new believer says well wait a minute god answers prayer doesn't he why don't we just pray I'm ashamed to admit that my first reaction was to try to figure out a way in my head how to explain to them that God doesn't always answer prayer. But I couldn't think of anything. But, okay, let's pray. And we prayed that she would find her wallet. And I thought, okay, you guys, you're feeling bad at that. Here's some money for ice cream, you know, go get an ice cream, you know. They, they didn't want ice cream, they wanted the wallet back, obviously. But they go down to the store to get some ice cream. They come back, they're both shouting and laughing and running, and one of them's got her wallet in her hand, waving it up in the air. And the crazy thing was, the money was still in it. And this is a public campground. God came through. Now, does God always come through the way we'd like him to? No, because he's wiser than we are, and he understands that some things need to happen to help us grow. But to remember those times when God did come through, it's really, really important for us. And that's one of the ways that we build up our hope, by remembering, remembering God's past actions. It goes on. In addition to God's past actions, God's presence. 9-6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. I'm not a great theologian, but Jesus could have done a drive-by crucifixion, and it would have worked. Kind of swoop in, die on the cross, get raised three days later, and go back to heaven. He could have done it. He didn't choose to. He chose to live on the earth for 30-plus years in order to be with us. And the fact is, is that because he came, because the Son came, he is with us. In fact, Hebrews eleven fifteen says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And the purpose of the cross, which I mentioned, was actually to take away the sin barrier between us and God so that we could be with God and he could be with us. We can count on God's presence because he gave us his son. The crazy thing is sometimes we just forget. And I forget. We all forget. We just do. It's who we are. 
And so God gives us things to remind us that, no, he is with us all the time. He really will never leave us or forsake us, even when sometimes it feels like he did. 23 years ago, my father died. He was up on the North Shore with uh, my mom. They were in a, in a resort up there. He died in the middle of the night. Um, she had to deal with that. She had to call the sheriff and, and EMTs and all that stuff. And, and it was a horrible, it was a horrible experience for her. But a little bit after that, she wrote each of her kids, there were four of us, she wrote each of us a letter to tell us what she had experienced that night. She talked about riding in the sheriff's car to the hospital, looking out the window to the right on the North Shore, and she could see the northern lights kind of up there in the sky. And she said, I don't think I've ever in my life felt the presence of God any more than I did that night. It was like he just had his arms around me, and he was just holding me. Since that time, I've talked to other people who lost a loved one. They talk about the same thing. That somehow in that experience, when they're brokenhearted, when they're down, when they feel like they're just crushed, the presence of God is there. And they sense it, they experience it, and it builds them up and it lifts us up. The crazy thing is, many times when we're going through the darkest times, that's when the presence of God is most evident to us. He will not leave us to flounder. He promises his presence, and we, we celebrate that. We celebrate the coming of Jesus and the decorations and everything else, and that's a great thing. But as was mentioned earlier, in addition to celebrating the coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago, we celebrate his return. He's coming back, and we can experience his presence. And it's good for us to remember that, because sometimes it's just life, and we forget I would encourage you this time, this Christmas season, if you can, carve out a little bit of time to just worship and reflect and listen. My wife and I and our kids had the privilege of living in the country of Austria for about 20 years. Christmas is done very differently over there. Here it feels like sometimes it's, everybody's redlining it and just going crazy, you know. Over there, intentionally, people slow down and take time and listen. I don't think it's coincidence that the song Silent Night was written by an Austrian in Austria. Sometimes we just need a silent night to hear the still, small voice of God and discover, no, he really is with me. He really is. Well, we've talked about God's past actions. We've talked about his presence. Let's go to the third one. God's character. God's character. 9-7. He should be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's tempting to put our hope in people and circumstances. And somehow if people treat us right and the circumstances work out, okay, then we got hope. And yet God takes us through experiences that are difficult to teach us to rely on the truth of his character. And we just have four things here. I mean, there's many more, but they're in this passage. He is a wonderful counselor. The counsel he provides truly is wonderful, even though... Sometimes we don't understand it or it seems counterintuitive. What comes to us through his spirit, through his word, and through other believers is quality. And it's worth hanging on to. 
He's a mighty God. He has the power to do the right things at the right time, in the right way, for the right reason. Power is not an issue for God. He can do all these things. He's an everlasting father. Sometimes this one is tough, and I'll tell you why. For many people, including a very good friend of mine that I was in a Bible study with, when we read about God being a father, he said, I don't know what to do with that. He says, I, I, I just think about my father. I think about how he behaved, how he let us down, how he destroyed our family, and I just can't think of God as a father. I didn't have an answer for him at the time. Since then, somebody told me something once, and it, it kind of stuck with me. It kind of made sense. It says, we assume that God is the reflection of our Father. He's not. He's the perfection of our Father. He's what a Father should be. And that's everlasting. It never stops. He will always be our Father. And you know what? That gives me hope. Not in the circumstances or a person, but in his character. Lastly, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And my experience has been, when I have hope, I have peace. Even though chaos is happening all around me. When I got hope, when I know that God is at work and I'm trusting in his truth and that foundation, I do have peace. Even to the point where, you know, sometimes other people will say, I can't believe you're so peaceful. Sometimes I'm saying to myself, I can't believe I'm so peaceful here. What's going on? Must be Jesus, I guess. We find a foundation for hope in God's character. Now, we've talked about three. We've talked about God's past actions. We've talked about God's presence. We've talked about his character. But there's one more here. That's God's plan. It says this in verse 7. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with righteousness from this time on forever. There is a goal to God's working. He is establishing his kingdom. He's doing that now. And we get to be a part of that. If we put our trust in Christ, if we've understood we can't save ourselves by being good, but we need to ask Jesus to forgive our sins based on what he did on the cross and receive him as our Lord and Savior, we will be part of that. And he's working not just on a personal level, but he's working on a national level, or an international level. In some ways, and I don't understand it. I don't, I'm not going to pretend that I do, but in some ways, even the chaos that we're seeing is something that is part of God's plan to bring everything, everything under the Lordship of Christ. Billy Graham was once asked, are you an optimist or a pessimist? He said, I'm an optimist. I read the book. I know how it ends. That's actually a good thing for us, to read the book and know how it ends. And that gives us hope. So there's four things. Number one, there's God's past actions. Number two, there's God's presence. Number three, there's God's character. Number four, there's God's plan, which we get to be a part of. Why talk about this now in Advent? Well, first of all, as was mentioned already, not only do we celebrate the Lord's coming 2,000 years ago, but we celebrate the fact that he is coming back. And Advent reminds us that, yes, Jesus is coming back. This ain't going to just keep going the way it is. There's going to come an end to this, and the end is going to be good. And it reminds us to hope in God, to hope in his actions, to hope in his presence, 
to hope in his character and to hope in his plan. And it reminds us to keep the big picture. Because it's easy to forget the big picture. A couple of things that God is going to do. Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. John 10.10. 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. And the last, I mean, we all know this one, but this has just gotten special meaning to me. We've been working on memorizing this one at Mokaham. Almost every morning I ask the students to say it. One of our students had to go meet with a lawyer this last week, and he told me on the phone afterwards, he said, I want you to know, I quoted John 3.16 to him. Awesome, man. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And those are good things to hang on to when the hope starts to dribble away. And I would encourage you this Christmas to do a couple of things. Take some time, remember said, get back a little bit, slow down a little bit, maybe light a candle, go out in the woods, do whatever, whatever it is you do to just slow down. Take some time to reflect on what God has done for you. Take some time to worship the risen and present Christ. Take some time to reflect on the character of God. And take some time just to review God's plan. Now, something else I want to say. If your hope isn't strong right now, you're in really good company. Don't forget, what did John the Baptist do when he was in prison? What did he go and ask his disciples to do? To go to Jesus and ask Jesus, are you the one we're looking for or should we wait for someone else? That was John the Baptist. The writer of Psalm 73, he actually says this in 73 too. As for me, I nearly slipped. I almost lost my foothold. Why? He was watching what was going on in the world around him. The rich were getting rich here. The rich were doing just fine. The people who were godly and righteous were suffering. It made no sense to him. Hope was just sliding away, draining away. And he says this. And he just goes on and talks about that until he gets to 73:17. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their destiny. He sought God in all of that. Rather than seeking answers, because sometimes we can't find the answers, we seek God in the middle of all that. The destiny of those who reject God, we know what that is, but what about our destiny? We have an eternity to look forward to. I mentioned we lived in Austria. One of my friends in Austria was a man named Emil Emil was fairly old when I met him. He's since gone to be with the Lord. But Emil had the wonderful experience of being drafted when he was 16 years old and sent to the Russian front in World War II. He literally experienced the Russian front, which sometimes gets joked about on that old show called Hogan's Heroes. In fact, when he got there, 16 years old, they didn't have guns for him, so they gave him a burlap sack full of grenades, and he said, wait until the enemy gets close enough and then throw these grenades at him. Really? How's that going to work? He survived it. And he got back to that town, and he actually was one of the first people I had the opportunity to pray with to receive Christ. And he, he and I would get together for coffee every couple of weeks and just talk. We talk. He loved talking about world events, but it was always the same. And you got to understand, Emil, he had this really deep, gruff voice, okay, because he smoked like a gazillion cigarettes in his lifetime. But, but he had this really deep, gruff voice, and he'd, he'd always say, pop, pop, pop. 
I knew it was coming. Wait for it. First thing you'd always say would be this. The reason why this church is doing so well is because of your wife, Sharon. Okay? Okay, fine. I agree. I'm not going to disagree with that. That's cool. Okay? But then he'd say, but Paul, when we see all these things happening, what does the Bible say to do? I know what you're going to say, Amen. Why don't you just say it? (laughs) And he said, when you see all this happening, lift up your heads because your redemption is near. Lift up your heads. Don't scurry and hide. Lift up your heads because your redemption is near. And you can only do that if you have hope. And you have hope when it's based on the truth of God, his past actions, his presence, his character, and his plan. And it's good for us during times when hope seems to be being sucked away to focus on those things. Now, we don't want to be just hearers of the word. We want to be doers as well. So this is what I'm going to ask you to do right now. Okay? Um, I'm going to ask you to take some time to talk to God. I'm going to ask you to ask God this question. Based on what I just heard, what do you want me to do? Based on what I just heard, what do you want me to do? And we'll allow some time just in the silence. Um, I'll be quiet. Just talk to God and listen to him. I believe with all my heart that if we come to God with a pure heart saying, God, I really want to know what you want me to do, it's not like he's going to say, try and figure it out. He's going to tell us. So let's take some time to do that. And then I'm going to pray. I'll turn it back over to the worship team. But then I want to ask you to do something else. After God tells you what he wants you to do based on all of this, find somebody else and tell them. That's called accountability. And it helps us to stay. Let's pray. Again, just ask God, based on what I just heard, what do you want me to do? God, you are so good to us, and we know that we can trust you, and we know that we can find our hope in you. Help us to do that. Now, for each person here in this room where you spoke to them, you showed them clearly, this is what I want you to do. Give them the courage. Give them the trust. Give them the faithfulness, the grace to simply do it. Thank you, Father, that you are with us. Thank you that you have worked in our past. Thank you that 